Hello, I'm Chris Hale, and welcome to Season 2 of the Dadcast, a podcast that provides read-alouds of short fiction, poetry, and scholarly articles to help a university student. The coffee mug is filled, breakfast cake is served, and the dogs have been walked. Let's get ready for the next episode of the Dadcast. Enjoy. Themes in Greek Society and Culture Chapter 16 Literature and Performance by Andrew Faulkner The tale reported by Plutarch that Alexander the Great kept a copy of Homer's Iliad under his pillow exemplifies the high social capital that such poetry had in ancient Greece. Plutarch informs us that the general kept the poem close to him on account of the fact that he was, by nature, a lover of literature and reading, to the extent that, when on campaign, he also arranged for texts of the great Greek tragedians and other poets to be sent to him. Alexander, a pupil of the famous Greek scholar Aristotle, was also a great lover of philosophy, and Plutarch's emphasis upon Alexander's devotion to reading is linked to his morality and his success as a general. Alexander's absorption of the Greek classics through the act of reading strikes a chord with a modern audience, who most often encounter Greek poetry by means of reading. In a world in which literature is closely linked to the act of writing and reading, it is easy for us to imagine the ancient Greeks sitting by themselves or in small groups reading the tales of Odysseus, much as we do today. Textual transmission of Greek literature was certainly one medium for disseminating and experiencing poetry in antiquity, without which these great works would not have survived to the modern day. But Greek poetry was in the archaic and classical periods more frequently heard than read, and writing did not always feature in its composition. The verses of Homeric epic were sung for audiences to the accompaniment of the lyre by itinerant bards, who traveled the Greek world peddling their trade, while the great Greek tragedies of the 5th century BCE were staged for audiences in Athens. The performance context of these ancient works are therefore essential to a full understanding of their meaning and significance. A purely textual approach ignores important elements of the ancient experience of Greek poetry, such as sound and spectacle and the particular social circumstances in which it was performed and reperformed. Introduction This chapter explores fundamental genres of Greek literature and their performance in the archaic and classical periods, as well as their afterlife in the Hellenistic period. We begin with an examination of Homeric hexameter poetry, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which have exerted an enormous influence on subsequent literary traditions. We then turn to lyric poetry, both Monody, performed by an individual, and choral lyric, performed by a chorus, with special attention given to the poets Sappho and Pindar. Connected to choral lyric is Athenian tragedy and comedy of the 5th century BCE, whose most famous dramatists are the three tragedians, Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and the comedian Aristophanes. We consider the staging and performance of both tragedy and comedy while looking at some of the best-known works of these four playwrights. The divisions of the chapter are chiefly generic, but there is also a broad chronological progression from the 8th to 3rd centuries BCE. Homer and Oral Hexameter Poetry An ancient biography of the poet Homer, the pseudo-Herodian life, tells of a gifted poet named Melisinganes, who falls blind on two occasions, 
once on the island of Ithaca, where he first learns the tale of Odysseus, and then again permanently at Colophon, on the coast of Asia Minor, just north of Ephesus. With the enduring loss of his sight, he continues to travel the world and deliver his first lines of poetry, going on to compose the Iliad, the Odyssey, hymns to the gods, and epigrams. It is Syme on the coast of Asia Minor, southeast of Lesbos, that he takes on the name Homer, given to him because of his disability, Homeros possibly being an Aeolian word for blind. Such a story, which abounds in mythological fancy, should not be taken as a reliable historical account of the poet's life. The name Homer is not originally Greek, and possibly results from the invention of an eponymous ancestor of a group of professional bards in Greece known as the Homeridae, whose name conceivably derives from a Phoenician name for a professional class of storytellers, the Benomerum, the sons of speakers. Whatever the true origin of the name, the spectacular story is revealing of the ancient conception of the poet of Greek epic poetry. The tale correlates Homer's supposed blindness with his poetic production. During his first bout of blindness on Ithaca, he learns the story of Odysseus, and only when he is permanently blind does he produce his own poetry. Blindness was commonly associated with prophets and poets in antiquity, both of whom were thought to be divinely inspired. The absence of the physical faculty of sight was linked to an inspired inner sight. Whether blind or not, the archaic rhapsody, a musician who sang epic poetry to the accompaniment of the lyre, is not imagined reading his poetry. An impossibility, of course, for the blind, but composing and reciting from memory. The performance of poetry in antiquity was often agnostic. The story of a poet contest between the poets Hesiod and Homer, which goes back to at least the Alcidamus in the 4th century BCE, describes a competition at the funeral games for Amphidamus, who fought and died in the Lelatine War, held at Chaklis on the Greek island of Euboea. Hesiod, the poet of the Theogony, an account of the beginning of the world and the birth of the gods, and Works and Days, a didactic poem giving advice about farming and good living for mankind, wins the contest on account of the practical and useful nature of his poetry. But Homer also performs admirably. Hesiod poses questions to Homer in verse, which are answered immediately in verse, both poets composing extemporaneously and reciting their own poetry from memory. Historically, it is doubtful whether a poet named Homer ever existed. Under the name of Homer have survived two long epic poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, a collection of hymns, and some epigrams, all in dactylic hexameter verse. The Iliad is a long poem of over 15,600 verses, which treats a crucial period in the final year of the Trojan War. According to the myth, the Greeks sailed to Troy on the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to avenge the abduction of Helen, wife of the Greek nobleman Menelaus, by the Trojan prince Paris. The battle goes on for nine years before, in the tenth year, the events of the Iliad take place. A central theme of the poem is the anger of Achilles, a Greek hero who withdraws from the battle to avenge a slight to him by the Greek king Agamemnon. With great emotional force, the Iliad narrates crucial and gruesome moments in the battle, the death of Achilles' companion Patroclus at the hands of the Trojan prince Hector, the return of Achilles to battle, and his slaying of Hector in revenge for the death of his friend. 
the poem closes with the burial of Hector and the ultimate fall of Troy on the horizon. The Odyssey is shorter, but still over 12,100 verses. It recounts the fabulous journey home from Troy to Ithaca of the Greek hero Odysseus, as well as the actions of his faithful wife, Penelope, and son, Telemachus, who in his absence resists the pressures of a group of gluttonous suitors vying for Penelope's hand, and therefore Odysseus' estate. With the help of the goddess Athena, Odysseus eventually makes his way home, is reunited with his wife and son, and takes his revenge upon the suitors by killing them. It has long been recognized that these poems developed out of an oral tradition, in which singers composed and transmitted hexameter poetry without the aid of writing. Apart from ancient depictions of epic poets that point in this direction, such as those discussed above, the formulaic nature of language in the Iliad and the Odyssey is evidence for their oral origins. The frequent repetition of phrases and word combinations, as well as type scenes, are explained by the needs of oral composition and transmission, which would have placed particular demands upon memory. Other hexameter poetry about the myth of the Trojan War, now largely lost, circulated during the archaic period, and traveling poets no doubt drew upon a stock of traditional language and scenes to compose and recast episodes on this theme. This meter, dactylic hexameter, was used particularly for epic and didactic poetry in antiquity. Meter and rhythm are an aid to memory. More controversial is the role writing may have played in the composition of the Iliad and Odyssey, in the form in which they have survived to us. A traditional view dates the composition of the poems to the second half of the 8th century BCE, without the aid of writing. But despite formulaic language and episodes, as well as some inconsistencies that reflect their oral origins, the Homeric poems we possess are written texts. Their narrative structure is complex, and it has been doubted whether this could have been achieved without the aid of writing. Memory would have been more practiced and powerful in a non-literate society, but it is still uncertain whether a poem as complex as the Iliad could have been composed without any aid of writing. Comparison with South Slavic epic has demonstrated that oral compositions can be of a similar length to the Homeric poems, but they are not exact parallels. It at least seems probable that the Homeric epics were written down and thus relatively fixed quite early. A 7th century BCE date for this seems not seems most reasonable, although some have argued that the epics were not recorded until the mid-6th century BCE or later. In a continuing tradition of oral composition past the 7th century BCE, we would expect to find evidence of significantly different versions. Whereas, the differences evident in the tradition of the Homeric poems are relatively minor. A tradition of oral recitation from memory no doubt continued after the poems were recorded in writing, but rhapsodies at this point measured their recitation against an accepted written version of the poems. At any rate, the oral performance of Greek poetry did not take place in the complete absence of writing, and it must be remembered that oral and literate traditions can coexist, just as they continue to do so today. The Greek alphabet adapted from an earlier Phoenician script was introduced into Greece in the late 9th or early 8th century BCE, and we have evidence of Greek poetry recorded in inscriptions from the second half of the 8th century BCE, a famous inscription on a drinking vessel found in Ischia, an island off the coast of Naples, refers to the vessel as the Cup of Nestor. 
the wise old warrior of the epic tradition whose cup is described in the Iliad, and declares in hexameter verse that whoever should drink from this cup, immediately the desire of beautifully crowned Aphrodite will seize him. These poems could be sung in a number of different settings, including religious festivals, royal courts, and smaller sympotic gatherings. A famous passage in the Homeric Hymn to Apollo, a hexameter poem of 546 lines from the 6th century BCE, describes the blind bard Homer visiting the festival of Apollo on the island of Delos. The length of the Iliad and Odyssey would have made it a massive undertaking to recite the entirety of either poem on one occasion, such as was done in Athens from the time of the Pisistratids, where both the Iliad and the Odyssey were performed in full every four years at the great Pan-Athenian festival. In the 3rd century BCE, the Hellenistic poet Callimachus composed a series of hymns in hexameter verse and elegiac couplets, in which he self-consciously draws upon early hexameter hymns and reflects upon performance context. The narratives of his 2nd, 5th, and 6th hymns to Apollo, Athena, and Demeter are set in a ritual frame, although it is debated whether these describe a real performance context. A variety of performance contexts, including symposia and royal courts, remained possible for hexameter poetry in the Hellenistic period. On many occasions, a bard must have recited shorter episodes related to the Trojan War. This is the case in Book 8 of the Odyssey, when the blind bard Democritus sings at the court of Alcinous, the king of the Phoenicians. Demodocus, who was naturally being compared to the figure of Homer, sings three songs. The first is at the king's palace and tells of the glorious deeds of warriors, including the quarrel between Odysseus and Achilles. The second is told in the public setting of the Agora, where there is a great crowd gathered for the athletic contest and describes Aphrodite's affair with Ares. The third, in the king's palace after dinner, tells the tale of the Trojan horse. Similar to the second of Demodocus's songs, the long narrative Homeric hymns, which recount the stories of the gods' birth or important moments in their lives, are of more manageable length. The longest, the Homeric hymns to Hermes, is 580 verses. These are believed to have been performed on their own or as preludes to longer recitations of epic. Demodocus prefaces his narratives of the Trojan horse with an invocation to the gods before telling how Odysseus and other prominent Greeks waited inside the horse to ambush the Trojans. In the audience is Odysseus himself, who experiences firsthand how his fame as a warrior is spread by poetry, while also shedding a tear for his fallen comrades. It is commonplace in ancient epic that poetry is a vehicle for transmitting and increasing fame. Lyric Poetry, Sappho and Pindar Alongside the performance of epic poetry in the 7th to 5th centuries BCE in ancient Greece, there was a concurrent tradition of what is commonly referred to as Greek lyric poetry. The poetry considered under this broad heading was composed in a variety of meters, distinct from the dactylic hexameter of Homeric epic, and was extremely diverse, often including elegy and iambus, meaning composed in elegiac and iambic meters, respectively. It was performed throughout Greece, either individually or by a group in choral setting, to the accompaniment of an instrument, either the lyre itself, an oboe known as the olos, or, in the case of individual performance, the harp. Lyric poetry 
which was often composed for a particular occasion, treats a large assortment of themes, including war, love, athletic victory, politics, and death. One of the earliest lyric poets, Archilochus, 7th century BCE, from the island of Paros, wrote poetry in several different meters, including trochaics, a metrical pattern in which a long syllable is followed by a short, and elegiac couplets, a hexameter verse followed by a pentameter verse. On themes as diverse as politics and his own sexual encounters with women. Lyric poetry is not entirely removed from the world of Greek epic. Lyric poets did draw on the language of epic and wrote at times about the great heroes and heroines of the Homeric poems. But lyric poetry is often distinguished from epic poetry, which deals with the heroic past by the personal and immediate nature of its subject matter. Certainly, one of the most famous of ancient Greek lyric poets, both in antiquity and today, is Sappho, who lived in the island of Lesbos at the end of the 7th and beginning of the 6th century BCE. What we know of her biography is gained from what she says in her surviving poetry and is therefore uncertain, but it is probable that she belonged to an elite family in Mytilene. Her poetry, as is the case with much ancient Greek lyric poetry, has survived to the modern day only in fragments. What we possess of her poetry comes through quotation by other ancient authors, but also papyrus scraps preserved in the dry sands of Egypt. New fragments continue to be found. A poem mentioning Sappho's brother, Charaxos and Lyracus, was recently identified in a private papyrus collection. It is possible that some of Sappho's poetry was performed by choruses of young maidens or in sympotic settings but many of her surviving verses are examples of monodic lyric poetry performed by an individual and not a chorus, probably presented amid small groups of her friends. The voice of Sappho's poetry is deeply personal, and she is well known for her poetry on erotic themes. In one of her poems, she complains to the goddess of love, Aphrodite, that she suffers because her love of a woman is unrequited. In what is a hymn to Aphrodite, the first-person voice of the poet appealing to the goddess of love on account of her suffering and pain contrasts with a Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, which celebrates the goddess impersonally in the third person and tells the story of Aphrodite's love affair with the Trojan hero Anchises. It is impossible to know to what extent the poetic voice of Sappho's poems reflect her own personal feelings and experiences but such lyric poetry nonetheless evokes a powerfully private and individual emotional experience. Choral lyric poetry, which was often performed publicly, similarly makes frequent use of the first-person pronouns I and we. Choral lyric poetry could be accompanied by the flute or lyre and choruses, groups of men and women, danced as they sang. Sappho's wedding songs, for example, may have been performed by groups of young women. There survives from the 7th century BCE Spartan poet Alcman, a so-called Parthenian or Maiden Song, a choral poem for performance by young women in which two choruses of young women led by the name characters Hagisichorus and Agiato are presented in competition with each other. In this instance, the poem evokes the context of ritual performance at an annual festival. But not all choral poetry was performed at large public or religious festivals. The Victory Ode to the Theban poet Pindar, composed to celebrate winners in the four major athletic festivals of ancient Greece, the Olympic, Pythian, Isthmian, and Nimian Games, could have been performed at the Games themselves soon after the victory, 
but in some cases it is clear that they were performed in the victor's hometown well after the athletic triumph. On these occasions, performance appears at times to have taken place in a public setting in the context of a festival, but also in the more private setting of a victor's house. The traditional view that Pindar's poetry was performed in a choral setting rather than solo by the poet has been questioned. Such caution is no doubt prudent, and the poet could well have made use of both choral and solo performance, but the internal evidence of Pindar's odes nonetheless suggests that performances of his poetry by male choruses was common. Pindar must himself have trained and performed with his choruses, and it was by means of his poetry that Pindar made a living, establishing connections with wealthy patrons. Pindar's poetry was popular in antiquity, and he, along with Sappho, was one of the canonical lyric poets. His oeuvre included, among other genres, hymns, maiden songs, laments, and victory odes. Much of his work has been lost or is extremely fragmentary, but his victory odes are well-preserved because the Hellenistic collection of the poems was passed down to us in the medieval manuscript tradition. Much more poetry of Pindar has therefore survived than Sappho. The odes frequently draw upon mythological exempla, but these ultimately connect to Pindar's program of praise for the victor in the here and now of his time. For example, in Olympian I, Pindar celebrates the victory of the tyrant Heron of Syracuse in the horse race of the Olympic Games in 476 BCE. The frame of the poem indicates sympotic performance at the palace of Heron in Syracuse, while the central myth of Pelops, a successful and famous victor at Olympia when he won the hand of Hippodamia in a chariot race, relates to the celebration of Herod's own Olympic victory. In Pindar's version of the myth, Pelops is aided by the god Poseidon in his chariot victory over Onanimos for the right to marry his daughter Hippodamia. Onanimos had previously killed 13 suitors who failed on the contest. Pelops' assistance from the divine and glorious victory is paralleled by Herod's own victory, and Pindar's claim that a god also guided the tyrant's success. We see above that epic poetry is concerned with the transmission and increase of fame. In its own way, so too is Pindar's Eponetian lyric. Athenian Tragedy and Comedy Choral performance was also a central element in ancient Greek tragic and comic theatre. The origins of Athenian drama, which developed in the 6th century BCE and reached its peak in the 5th century BCE, are uncertain, but it seems to have been influenced by choral lyric. In his Poetics, a treatise on Greek poetry from the 4th century BCE, Aristotle tells us that tragedy developed by means of improvisation on the part of the leaders of the Dithran, a type of lyric hymn sung in honor of Dionysus. This testimony has been doubted by modern scholars, but there is nonetheless a strong connection between ancient Athenian drama and Dionysus. Thespis, the name from which our modern word thespian derives, was said in antiquity to be the inventor of tragedy, although the evidence for this tradition is unreliable. Tragedy, comedy, and satyr plays, the body productions featuring the hypersexualized satyrs, were performed each year at a religious festival in honor of Dionysus, known as the city Dionysia. This took place in the Attic month of Elephobulion, which corresponds to March and April. In the second half of the 5th century BCE, dramatic competitions were also instituted at the Linnea, a festival that took place in the Greek month of Gamelion, January, February. And there were also 
may have been some dramatic performances at smaller rural festivals held on a smaller scale in the deems that surround Athens. But by far the most important festival for the performance of ancient Greek drama was the city Dionysia, which attracted many people to Athens. Dionysus, a god who in mythology is connected to social inversion and transformation, is closely linked to the transformative nature of dramatic enactment. The performance of Greek drama at the festival was competitive, with the victors gaining fame and prestige. As part of the tragic competition, each playwright was judged upon the staging of three tragedies and one satyr play. Each year, it was the responsibility of the Archon, the magistrate, to choose three people who would compete in the competition. The authors or composers of the tragedy were officially called didaskoloi, or teachers, which reflects their duties beyond composition. In the second half of the 5th century BC, roles came to be divided, with professional actors being introduced and individuals other than the composer of the drama directing the chorus. But in the beginning, it was the responsibility of the didaskoloi to train the chorus in their spoken parts, melodies, and dances, write the drama, and deal with costumes and staging. In effect, they were responsible for almost the entire production. The productions were expensive affairs and often financed by a wealthy citizen who was called the choreogus, which means leader of the chorus. The plays were staged in the theater of Dionysus, built into the hill just below the Acropolis, where the remains of later reconstructions of the theater can still be seen. Next to the theater stood the religious sanctuary of Dionysus, where offerings were made to the god in the context of this festival. The exact 5th century dimensions and design of this theatre are debated, but it contained a dancing floor, the orchestra, where the chorus and actors performed, a wooden backdrop with a central door, and seating for the audience extending up around the performance area. It has been suggested that the raised stage area also provided a platform for actors, who were thus separated from the chorus, but we cannot be certain this existed in the early history of the theatre. There were three entries to the performance area, two passages from either side of the backdrop known as the paradoi and the central door. The amphitheater design produces excellent acoustics and it is probable that many thousands of people attended these theatrical performances in the 5th century BCE. All the performers in the Athenian plays were men who played both male and female roles. The actors in chorus dressed up in costumes and all wore masks which were carefully stylized to project the persona of the character along with the voice of performers. Masks were made of materials such as leather or linen and thus have not survived, but we find numerous representations of masks and costumes in vase, painting, and other art. In the Pernomus face, actors are seen holding their masks, not severed heads. In the beginning, at least, there were at most three principal actors who adopted different masks and thus performed all the spoken roles apart from the chorus. Modern drama is often distinguished from poetry, but Greek drama was poetry, composed in poetic meters rather than in prose. The structure of Greek tragedy and comedy alternated between sung choral sections, which employed lyric meters and were accompanied by music, and sections spoken by the main actors, principally in iambic trimeters. One can trace the influence of both epic and lyric poetry in Greek drama on the levels of language and context. Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. The three canonical Greek tragedians of the 5th century BCE are Aeschylus, 
Sophocles, and Euripides. For the most part, tragedy deals with the mythical past, even if this provides social commentary on contemporary society. But there are also examples of tragedies that dramatize recent events. Aeschylus, who was well known in antiquity for his bombastic language, is said to have been particularly concerned with spectacle, wrote a play entitled Persians, which staged episodes from the Persian Wars in which the ghosts of the Persian king Darius, the queen Atossa, and their son Xerxes all appear as characters. An earlier production entitled Phoenician Women by a playwright named Phrynichus, on which Aeschylus' play was partially based, also dealt with Xerxes and the Persian Wars. The majority of tragedy, however, looked to the more distant path of myth, including episodes related to the Trojan War. There was no clear distinction between history and myth in antiquity, but an Athenian audience no doubt understood a distinction between the stories of mythical heroes such as Agamemnon and those of 5th century BCE warfare still in living memory. In 458 BCE, Aeschylus staged three plays, Agamemnon, Libation Bears, and Eumenides, collectively known as the Arestia dealing with the curse of the house of Atreus embroiled in a cycle of family violence across generations. The first play stages the Greek king Agamemnon's return from Troy and his murder by his wife Clytemestra, who was angry with him because he sacrificed their daughter Iphigenia to ensure favorable winds for the Greek army sailing to Troy. The second play has their son Orestes return to avenge his father's death by killing his mother. The third play treats Orestes' flight from the Furies, the avenging deities who punish parenticide and the chorus of the play, and his eventual acquittal by the Athenian courts and the patron goddess of the city, Athena, who cast the deciding vote. The trilogy as a whole problematizes questions of culpability and justice, while Orestes' acquittal in the law courts of Athens blurs the distinction between mythological and contemporary time. The law courts, together with Athena, bring a new order of stability, ending the cycle of violence, and Aeschylus' dramatic version of the myth has often been taken as social commentary on the edifice of Athenian democracy. Athena, as an actor speaking on stage in a fictionalized law court, is also a reminder that Greek drama is not entirely removed from other types of performance in classical Athens, such as the rhetorical art of the law courts. Sophocles' plays are perhaps less imposing than Aeschylean drama, with its heavy use of compound adjectives. Sophoclean language is agile, and he makes extensive use of metaphor to explore human psychology. Perhaps his most famous play, Oedipus the King, tells the story of Oedipus, who is paradoxically clever enough to solve the riddle of the Sphinx, but at the same time unwittingly sleeps with his mother, Jocasta, whom he marries after unknowingly killing his father, Laius. An oracle informed Laius that his son would kill him, so he had him exposed on a mountain to die. Oedipus, however, was rescued by a shepherd and raised in Corinth, unaware of his real parentage. Oedipus himself is later told by an oracle that he will kill his parents and thus leaves Corinth to avoid this fate, only in doing so to bring about this horrible fate. The play explores the ambiguity of oracular language and knowledge of the wills of the gods. It also makes extensive use of the metaphors of blindness and sight, darkness and light. When Oedipus learns who his true parents are, he blinds himself. Ironically, physical blindness accompanies true knowledge of his fate. The play becomes the canonical account of the myth, which had also been treated by Aeschylus. 
It is this myth that lies behind Sigmund Freud's Oedipus complex, the desire of one's parent, in his psychoanalytic theory. Euripides had a reputation in antiquity for realism in his plays, and was famously contrasted with Aeschylus by the comedian Aristophanes, who in his play Frogs has the two dead playwrights take part in a poetic competition in Hades. Among other contentious remarks, Aeschylus accuses Euripides of giving voice to low and disreputable characters in his plays. Euripides is also known particularly for his sharp portrayal of female psychology, and he was in antiquity sometimes said to be a misogynist, although some modern scholars have conversely argued for his feminism. In his Medea, which stages Medea's murder of her own children in revenge against her husband Jason for taking another wife, we encounter a conflicted woman who overcomes her love for children to satisfy her sense of justice. Euripides' Bacchae, in which Dionysus is himself a major character, similarly dramatizes the horrific killing of a child by a female character. Agave, in a frenzied state brought about by Dionysus, kills her son Pentheus in the mountains, whom she mistakes for a mountain lion in her madness. Led on by Dionysus, Pentheus had dressed up as a woman to spy on his mother and her companions in their mountain worship of the god, and his death comes as punishment for not initially recognizing and worshipping Dionysus. The play is full of metatheatrical elements linking the myth to dramatic performance and the transformative experience of social inversion. For example, Pantheus cross-dressing as a woman to go into the mountains reflects upon the theatrical cross-dressing of the male actors playing women. Comedy and Aristophanes As in the case of tragedy, the origins of Greek comedy are uncertain. The Greek word komoidia, from which the English word comedy derives, may be connected etymologically to the word komos, which denotes a band of revelers at a festival. An Attic comedy of the 5th century BCE probably owes something to earlier farces. Traditions of comic performance developed also in Greek colonies in Sicily and southern Italy. But it was in Athens that Greek comedy, alongside tragedy, acquired its most complex form. Athenian 5th century BCE comedy, known as Old Comedy, featured ribald physical and sexual humor alongside cutting political satire. In contrast to tragedy, comedy was very much connected to contemporary politics, even as it juxtaposes these with fantastical and even utopian plots. Greek public figures and politicians were lampooned regularly in Greek old comedy, which provided social commentary alongside what must have been a comic escape from the seriousness of the everyday Athenian life. The physical and scatological, that is to say bodily, humor of old comedy is immediately accessible to a modern audience. But the political satire of the plays requires knowledge of Athenian political and cultural history. A reminder of how culturally specific comedy often is. The best known poet of Athenian old comedy is Aristophanes, 11 of whose plays have survived. Other comic poets of the period now exist only in fragmentary form, which makes their assessment of old comedy heavily focused on one author and therefore potentially misleading, although Aristophanes was acknowledged also in antiquity as his master of his art. Cratinus and Eupolis, Aristophanes' opponents, completed the canon of comic poets in antiquity. As in the case of tragedy, a visual and physical elements of the dramatic performance were important conveyors of meaning. 
Like in tragedy, the chorus played a central role, and choral lyric sections alternated with spoken parts by the main actors. All actors and chorus members also wore costumes and masks, but these brought comic effect. Costumes featured padded bellies, and ancient comedy and satyr drama made use of the phallus, a feature we do not often see in modern theatre. Satyrs wore small erect phalluses, while in old comedy, male characters wore a dangling phallus, which was intended to be ridiculous. The choruses of Aristophanes at comedy were also often animals, which provide the names of some of his plays, such as birds or wasps. Aristophanes frequently made use of Athenian politicians, and he became particularly well-known for betraying the general Cleon in a comic light. Aristophanes was active during the Long Peloponnesian War in the last quarter of the 5th century BCE, and his political commentary was not without danger. In his first extant play, Acarnians, staged in 425 BCE, his main character, Dicaeopolis, speaks of the power of comedy to reveal truth while making reference to a charge of slandering the city in front of foreigners that Cleon purportedly brought against the playwright for his production of a play entitled Babylonians, which is now lost in the previous year. We have already seen above in the discussion of his comic portrayal of the tragic poets Aeschylus and Euripides in competition in the underworld that Aristophanes did not limit his comic satire to political figures, but also lampooned prominent literary and cultural figures. References to Euripides and his poetry appear frequently in the extant plays. As in the case of the tragic poets, Aristophanes draws upon a range of Greek literature for his language and content but engagement with the mythological past comes with a comic twist. In Birds, from 414 BCE, for example, the gods are portrayed absurdly as figures upset at the birds for taking control of the heavens. In the play, Aristophanes draws upon the myths of the Titomachia, the War of the Titans, and the Gigantomachia, the war between the giants and the Olympian gods. Mixing mythology with the fantastic ambitions of the two Athenian characters, Pisthetraeus and Euripides, who lead the birds to take control from the gods. Other plots are more down-to-earth, but equally fantastical, in the context of ancient Athenian society. In Lysistrata, the main character leads a group of women to take over the Acropolis, an improbable concept in the male-dominated culture of Athens. The women withhold sex from the men until they agree to end the Peloponnesian War. In all these cases, physical humor was an important element of the comic theatrical experience. In Lysistrata, the women who were stereotypically sex-crazed struggled to give up sex themselves to put pressure on the men. In the midst of the siege of the Acropolis, one woman pretends to need to leave because of pregnancy, putting a metal helmet of Athena under her dress, which Lysistrata reveals by knocking on her belly. As comedy moved in the 4th century BCE toward the so-called new comedy of Menander, which directly influenced later Roman comedy and thus the later tradition of European comedy from Moliere to Shakespeare, direct political satire and fantastical plots disappeared. Instead, the more generic situational comedy of misidentification, problematic love affairs, and the comic interaction of the, gender, of the clever slave and his enslaver in the Athenian domestic sphere developed. In these later manifestations of comedy, the chorus also loses its integral role, as it had begun to do already in Aristophanes' early 4th century play, Wealth. 
many elements of the subsequent tradition of comedy can nonetheless be traced back to old comedy and the late melodramatic tragedies of Euripides, such as Ion, where enslaved characters and misidentification play an important role. Physicality and spectacle nonetheless remain important constituents of comedy throughout antiquity. Summary. This chapter has examined three of the most canonical types of early Greek poetry, epic hexameter poetry, lyric poetry, and Athenian drama, including both tragedy and comedy. We have seen that each of these has unique features, but also that they did not exist in isolation from one another. The influence of Homeric poetry is discernible in both lyric and dramatic poetry, while a choral lyric is closely associated with the development of tragedy and comedy and democratic Athens. We have further explored the performance elements and context of this poetry, considering how the realities of performance substantially affected the meaning and significance of these literary forms within ancient Greek culture. Homeric poetry, which developed from an oral tradition, was performed to the accompaniment of the lyre by traveling bards. Possible venues for the performance of epic hexameter poetry include major religious festivals, royal court settings, and smaller sympotic contexts. Lyric poetry, which includes a broad range of metrical forms, was both monodic, sung by a single performer, and choral, enacted by a chorus of men or women who both sang and danced. Lyric poetry is immediately situational and personal, at times revealing the personal emotions or political concerns of the narrator and others, as in the case of Pindar, celebrating victories in athletic competitions. It seems that both hexameter and lyric poetry could be performed in both public and private situations. Athenian drama developed into maturity in the democratic state of the 5th century BCE. Both tragedy and comedy, even the former, whose plots were based mostly on the mythical past, reflected upon Athenian politics and statehood. In the case of comedy, the plays of Aristophanes involve biting political satire, which was felt deeply by statesmen of his day. On the Athenian stage, spectacle, costumes, and physicality were important conveyors of meaning. It is through text that these great works have survived to the modern day, but we must never forget the Greek literature of the archaic and classical periods was not primarily textual. It was sung, heard, and enacted together with dance and movement. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to check the actual text for notes and additional information and graphics. And remember, every day is a learning day.